Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Melissa June Rowley, founder and CEO of Warrior Love Productions. She shares with us her journey as a storyteller and how she came to realize her power that led her to start her company. It's amazing to see the impact she's having on the Web3 space and how she's driving change at the intersection of social impact and technology. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's such a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we're going to get into your career in a minute, but I really want to start off with what you're doing now and your company, Warrior Love Productions. Tell us about the company. Why did you start it? And what's your mission? Sure. So Warrior Love Productions is a social impact strategy studio and marketing consultancy. I started it because my background is in journalism. I started at CNN, Associated Press, worked for many different companies, and I just really found a need to provide storytelling for companies internally, kind of being a company's internal editorial director. So doing a lot of content strategy, marketing, thought leadership, and our sweet spot is the intersection of technology and social impact. So either companies working at that convergence or companies, maybe they're specializing in tech or company culture and they really want to bring more social impact or climate positivity into what they're doing. I started the company about two and a half years ago when I was living in Puerto Rico, and we have about eight people. We're all remote, all running around the world and gathering stories, and here we are. That is great. And what kind of company do you gravitate toward or problem that you're trying to solve for them? We end up working with a lot of startups, I think, by virtue of the fact that we're a startup. And my journey into social innovation started when I began meeting entrepreneurs and founders who were harnessing technology for social good. I was a tech journalist for a number of years, didn't really feel passionate about it until I started meeting those people, harnessing or creating technology for social impact. A lot of them are creating incredible products and services. They just don't necessarily have the capacity to put their storytelling at the forefront of what they're doing. They're busy having an impact. They're busy getting customers. They're busy making deals. And so what we found is a lot of organizations just need support in telling their story with clarity and confidence and also figuring out ways how to drive deeper impact. Just over the years for myself being an activist, I went to about 80 countries in four years when I was living in London and spent a lot of time in developing parts of the world. And just by virtue of that, we're able to see, well, you know what, this community has a need. These nonprofits need support. They're aligned with your mission as a company. You should talk with them and we should figure out a strategy. And do the companies that you work with, do they inherently have this story given that they're a founder and they're really starting something where they see a problem and you just have to pull that story out of them? Absolutely. I think most people know their story, even if they don't think they know it. On some level, they know what inspired them. They know what their purpose is. They might not always think they have a great company narrative because it's not really flashy and they want to be on the front page of the New York Times. And I explain to people, that's great. That's not going to happen right away. It's not always just what your company is doing per se. It's sometimes it's the team. It's the individual people on the team and their stories and what brought them together and what drives them. And I think that's really what business is about. Business is people. I didn't really understand that until well into my 30s. Now I'm in my mid-40s and I'm kind of like, I became a better business person because I understand people better. So I hope. (laughs) Well, and you've written so extensively about helping companies tell their story and really starting out with something very compelling, very gravitating. How did you learn that lesson as a journalist that the story was really going to be the driver and you had to really start off with something that captures people's attention? From my journalism career, I understood that the most compelling stories are going to evoke emotion 
They're going to pull at someone's heartstring. They're going to connect the dots in humanity. If I just start out with some facts and some data, people's eyes are going to glaze over, especially now, especially in this attention deficit economy that we're in. When I was a producer for CNN and I was learning how to produce packages that we would film in the field, my editor would come back and say, okay, you want to start this with some big natural sound or some kind of huge action or really compelling, outrageous soundbite. You have to pop, you have to hit people with a bang. And now because of the adult ADHD that many of us have, but you have to do that with writing too. One of my favorite editors I ever had was at BBC News. I freelanced for them for a little bit and I turned an article into him and I thought it was pretty well written. And he turned it in and he said, this is fine. He said, but you're going to lose people if you don't grab them in the first five seconds of them reading it. And I realized he was applying that same principle of it needs to pop. It needs to really grab people. My writing process is kind of similar. Some people are able to skip around the order of an article and go to the middle, go to the end. I can't move on until I have the first paragraph exactly the way I want it. Once the top part is there, once I feel like, okay, this is gripping, this is interesting, people are going to want to read more, then I can move on into the next part. So tell us about getting started in journalism. What compelled you to go into that career? What was so interesting to you? And how did you choose to write about technology, ultimately? I always was a storyteller. I mean, we're all storytellers. What I tell people is that if you have a voice, if you have lived experiences, you are a storyteller, whether you think that it's a talent of yours or not. Anybody can cultivate this as a craft within themselves. And as a young kid, I remember taking books and pretending like I was reading them to kids my age when I didn't know how to read. (laughs) It was between journalism and voice. That was my other potential major. So I was a singer too. But I chose journalism because I thought that that would be a more secure career. It's not. I have no idea why I thought that. (laughs) I have no idea why I thought that. These days, too, many journalists become entrepreneurs or they start cultivating entrepreneurial skills so that they can have a longer career, a career with more autonomy. Majored in broadcast journalism in college, and then I started my career at an internet startup and then went to a cable TV network and then later went to CNN, Associated Press, Entertainment, all these places. First, I started in tech journalism, which I didn't understand. I thought I'm not really geeky or nerdy enough. I don't understand technology enough to really do these stories justice. And then I was at CNN doing business news from the New York Stock Exchange when I was in my early 20s. It was completely over my head. I think the only women there were myself, Maria Bartiromo, and a couple other women milling around. This was around 2002, 2003. It was really incredible to be there every day, too. Had I been more present, I think I would have gotten stories just from walking around that New York Stock Exchange floor. It's probably so different now. I haven't been back in decades, right? It's probably everything's digital. Then I moved to Los Angeles and I was covering entertainment. I was doing red carpet interviews and film junkets and movie premieres. And that was a very fun chapter. (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet. What was sort of the most unexpected thing you covered or something that was really interesting, a highlight? Highlight interviewing B.B. King, ridiculously charming, and interviewing Oliver Stone for an hour. Those were great. And this was before smartphones. I think flip cams were out at that point, but I didn't get any pictures of that. Those were my early CNN days, and that was early 2000s. Memorable experience that kind of turned me away from being an entertainment journalist. Not that I still don't think that it's a fun, lively career and that there's good work that's done in that arena. I was standing outside Paris Hilton's house one morning at six in the morning with about eight other TV crews. And this was when she was being taken to jail. 
we were supposed to get a soundbite of her talking about what she feels as she's being taken to jail. So she was escorted to the sheriff's car. The sheriff started to drive away. A reporter from one of the TV crews slipped his arm in the window to try to get a soundbite from Paris Hilton. And the car kept driving down the hill. This reporter got dragged down the hill. And I remember my camera operator looked at me and he's like, I think we've taken vocational wrong turns. And that was one. There were many moments that I just didn't feel that this was the best use of my journalistic skills. <laughs> this was right around the recession. Got really broke. I was freelance producing at the time. I wasn't on payroll. And one of the first things to go in the media were the freelancers. I moved up to San Francisco because I was broke. I was living on my best friend's couch. Because I was in Silicon Valley, I started meeting tech entrepreneurs. And this was kind of during the rise of social media for social good. This was when the term social entrepreneurship became really popular. So I started to really immerse myself in this intersection of technology and social impact, and that became my sweet spot. And it was hard because at first I was earning $15 per blog post. So I stayed on my best friend's couch for a couple more months longer. And then I got hired by E! Entertainment to take on a job to produce segments for a morning show. Put all my things in my car and my Ford Mustang, and I drove back down to L.A., signed a lease in an apartment I could not afford. Three weeks later, the show got canceled. I didn't know what to do. The recession was still happening. One of my friends said to me, she said, I think it's time for you to start thinking of yourself differently. You're thinking of yourself as kind of this one-trick pony that you only have a certain skill set. And she said, you're a storyteller. You're a great storyteller. Everybody needs people like you. Maybe you're not going to be in the field producing segments or on the red carpet or doing business news, but maybe you can apply these same skill sets to companies that need storytellers. And so I started my individual consulting business then. And that was really my journey to becoming an entrepreneur. It wasn't because I had some great vision. It was out of pure desperation. But that's a really amazing kernel in there. What was it, do you think, about someone else kind of pulling up the mirror and saying, like, look at what you're really good at doing. This is a skill that's in demand. How did you receive that at first? And then dwell on that and think about that for your own new business. I instantly knew what she meant. And it felt really great to be seen and acknowledged that way. And this was a friend of mine who was doing a lot with social media, early adopter days of Twitter, Facebook. This was when everything was about Foursquare and we were all saying where we were all the time and doing things that we would never do today. <laughs> I mean, we still do it, just not in the same. It was a relief that, okay, there's things I can do. So when I started my business doing content strategy, which is, I think, a kind of pretentious way to say writing, writing with a real strategic purpose, not just putting out a blog post or a thought leadership article for the hell of it, but doing who do we want to see this? Who are the partners that you want to solidify deals with in the next year? What are your business goals? What's your purpose and your mission? And how is this content really going to help drive that? And nowadays, as you probably know, everybody's a self-publisher. Everybody's doing this. Not everybody's doing it particularly well, though. But I am impressed with a number of brands that have managed to, many of them, I think, coach journalists to be their content directors. So that's been going on for a while. I would say that was definitely a turning point was starting my business that way. How did you find the name for your business? How did you come up with that? What is its meaning to you? The current business warrior love productions. So my friends used to say that I was a warrior for love. Maybe it was because of all my ridiculous dating fiascos. They thought, well, she just believes in love no matter what. <laughs> When I was getting into technology and social impact, that's when I really started to consider myself an activist of sorts. I mean, I think these days we all have platforms that we use. So I think many of us are activists. Activism is kind of a loaded term, so it depends on in which context it's being used. But for me, it was how do I use my community? How do I use my voice and my talents to celebrate others, to help others and to celebrate others, the innovation that they're doing? So right around this time, I started working with Peter Gabriel, 
I had always wanted to work with him. I grew up in the 80s listening to his music, but it wasn't until 99, 2000 that I learned about his work as an activist and a nonprofit leader. He had started an organization called The Elders with Richard Branson and Nelson Mandela. They bring together a lot of diplomats and former presidents to influence policy. And he had also started a nonprofit called Witness, which is still around, and they provide media training and equipment for people to document human rights violations. I applied for a job at Witness when I was in my early 20s through an email, didn't hear anything. And then I met Peter at a party in Malibu. It was at a music producer's house. It was a very intimate gathering. Peter got up and he sang In Your Eyes with this orchestra. I have it on my YouTube. And then he sang a lullaby. And I approached him afterwards, wanting to just say I'm a big fan of your work, not only as a musician, but everything that you've done in the social innovation space. And he's actually a very soft-spoken man. And he was looking at me listening, taking everything in that I was saying. But he was so quiet that I was feeling uncomfortable. When I'm in those situations, I start to talk more. I either leave or I start to talk more. And I was talking more and more, and it just started to go really badly. And it was really awkward, and it didn't go anywhere. So that was the second time I met him. I met him again five years later. I was living in New York now. Again, this is my third time living in New York. I met someone who asked me if I would be the editorial director for a technology and social good site called The Toolbox. And they said, Peter Gabriel, this is his vision. Took them out as a client and became their editorial director so I could work with Peter. I didn't have any access to him right out of the gate, but then the person who started the organization left. He said, there's a little bit left in funding if you want to take over and do this. So I saw it as an opportunity to finally work with one of my heroes, and we started working together. I began spending more time in London. Eventually, I moved there, and we were co-founders. When I was living in San Francisco, I used to play one of his favorite songs of mine, Salisbury Hill, when I would drive over the Bay Bridge every day. And so to then be co-founders with him, I think it was a good 15 years later that that happened. That's a really great story of having all that time go by, really being patient and looking at those opportunities to get to know someone and work with someone who had long been on your radar and what a person indeed. So we play his music in our house all the time. I love that. That is great. Tell us how, you know, in your current work these days, as you're gravitating toward even new sectors like Web3, how are you making the pivot now to something new? You describe being really a pioneer early on in social media and helping to tell that story. I think the Web3 is now the next frontier. And so you're really leading the charge there. How do you think about that new sector and trying to get clients comfortable in that space? Yeah, I like that you made the comparison between social media and Web3 because there are definitely some similarities. And I'd say the biggest one that I see is in the importance of community. Web3 is so community driven. It started with different blockchain companies and people buying their tokens and anything Web3 based is only going to not only survive, but potentially be successful and thrive as if there is a very strong community that vouches for one another, that values one another's opinions and moves together collectively and consciously in that way. And that's really what I think attracted me to Web3. I don't want to say since the beginning of blockchain, I've known about it or writing about it, but I was writing about blockchain around as early as 2014, not really understanding what it was, but then starting to see it from a social impact perspective. And in 2018, I went to the Zatari refugee camp on the border of Jordan and Syria because they have a grocery store that runs on blockchain. So this is a project that was started by the World Food Program. So I called the World Food Program and I said, I'd really like to visit this site. Can I please come? The main reason I wanted to go was I wanted to visit the refugee camp, but I also wanted to see a real life tangible blockchain based solution. At the time, around 2016, 
ICOs happening and all these investments going into coins and blockchain and investors, all they wanted to see was a white paper. And I'm like, who made this the gold standard that that's all you have to do? Not that there's not plenty of intelligence and thought put into white papers. But I just remember thinking, if I'm going to write a story that the average everyday person can relate to, I understand I need a real life thing in front of me. (laughs) I need more than a paper and a theory. And so the World Food Program was nice enough to take me to Zatri and they showed me the blockchain solution. And it's probably advanced and changed since then. But basically, the refugees go to their grocery store to shop for themselves or their families. They walk into the store rather than having to show a card that does a cash transfer. They biometric system comes up, scans their digital identity, and then the money is transferred immediately. And the reason the World Food Program wanted to do that was because so much money was going to banks as the third party to facilitate this. Because this is done on blockchain, there's no third party involved. That's remarkable. And it's easy to use for people and people on the ground are comfortable with it. I think the people living there, I wasn't in a place where I was allowed to interview them about it. I was just kind of there to observe and I didn't want to take pictures. There were plenty of people in the grocery store using this blockchain system. So on the Web3 piece, you have a Web3 studio. Tell us about the work there and how you're getting clients very comfortable or more comfortable going into that space and telling stories there. And what kind of education do you have to do with your clients? So we actually don't have to provide too much education for our current Web3 clients because they're already Web3-focused companies. We are doing a project with a nonprofit called CARE, care care.org. So care.org, CARE has been around since World War II. They originated the CARE package. And then over the years, they evolved into one of the first nonprofits to really put women and girls at the center of social impact because they saw that when women and girls are in leadership positions, the world is a better place. More kids are fed, more families are fed, more kids go to school, more money is invested in communities. This is just what happens when women are in charge of their communities. We've got data on it. Also, when more women are on boards and more women are in companies, the companies see better returns. I mean, we know all these arguments. The numbers don't lie. And so CARE was one of the first organizations to really put their aid and their efforts behind that. They asked us to create an NFT in partnership with them. So I'll be sure to follow up with you and tell you all about it. So as you were creating this new business, tell us about the challenges there. What were some of the things that you struggled with as a new entrepreneur and how did you overcome some of them? I've had a lot of challenges and they continue, but they're just bigger and different. My initial challenges when I just first started to do independent consulting was asking for what I was worth, which I didn't know. So I would charge monthly retainers to organizations and lowball myself because I was afraid if I asked for what I really wanted or what would I thought they might perceive as too high, then they would say no. And the thing is, is that's not true. If they really want you, they might not meet you, but they will negotiate with you. When I was running the startup with Peter Gabriel, I suffered from burnout quite a bit. People thought because he was involved, his name was attached, that we had all this funding, which wasn't the case. I was going out and getting more funding and I was also doing my own consulting on the side. So I was pretty burnt out. And then recently, the biggest challenge with Warrior Love Productions has really been recovering from burnout as well. The Web3 market going up and down the last year, we definitely took a hit. The first hit happened in May. I was at the Cannes Film Festival promoting a film program that my company's doing. And we had three clients pause their contracts all at once. Their entire runway was crypto. So they had good reason to. And then that happened again in November. So what I did was I had to pause all of my contractors' contracts other than my assistant. Those are never easy conversations to have. And now I'm gradually bringing people back in as my pipeline is emerging and we're bringing a new business. But what I realized in that moment too of having those conversations was that I have been severely, severely burnt out for several months. I had just normalized it. 
I was living in Portugal over the spring and summer and I was getting a massage on my left shoulder. Later found out I had a torn tendon. I have no idea how I did that. And the fact that I don't know how I did it is a clear sign to me that I'm not fully in my body. Something's going on. And then she was massaging me and she said, your stomach and your intestines are inflamed. Are you stressed? And I said, no, I don't feel stressed. I definitely wasn't happy. Just going through life pretty stressed out and I had normalized it. And what I realized when I took a step back from that is your well-being, your self-care, your mental health, your everything you, your alignment has to be top priority all the time in everything. And it's really easy to fall off the wagon from that because if there is a financial crisis or if you lose a client or if you're fundraising, it's so easy to get tunnel vision and just get sucked into work mode and become a workaholic, especially if you're an entrepreneur, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, we thrive on that adrenaline. And being a creative, being a journalist and spotlighting innovation and supporting communities in that way through storytelling, one of the reasons I do it is because it feels good. It brings me joy. I feel good doing it. So if I'm running this business and all I'm doing is running the business and I'm not feeling any joy, you're going to go straight to burnout. That's been the biggest challenge is now learning that lesson and approaching things differently as I'm rebuilding. And so are you taking more time to get back to the storytelling where you can do more of the creative pieces in addition to running the business? Yes. So I'm developing a podcast about storytelling. I'm just being much more mindful and selective about the kinds of projects we're taking on in the business. Every year that I'm in business, I feel like I'm very privileged because we do get approached by companies that are mission aligned and values aligned but we can be even more aligned. You might be focused on social impact or climate action, but if your company values seem like they're not really going to integrate with ours, I can't do business with you. The stress of it is not worth it. And we could take that money, we could take that revenue, I could hire all of my contractors back tomorrow if I did that. But is that really the best thing for the business? And is that really the best thing for me as a founder? No, so I'm not doing it. But that's really tough to say no to potential business and to new revenue and to bring back your people. That's really tough. But it's interesting you've drawn that line with the values and with your personal priorities. It's already creating a difference. It's already enabling me to have more space internally and psychologically. So I'm able to think about things like doing a podcast. I'm able to think about things when it comes to being a journalist again and wanting to travel a bit more again and be in the field. I'm still running my business, so I'll need to figure out how to do that and be a journalist at the same time. But I think we'll come down to having a new growth strategy and bringing in the right people. I'd actually like to replace myself, find someone who can run the company and also has talents and skill sets that I either don't have at all or just am not that great at. It's kind of like rebuilding, refocusing, finding someone to replace myself and all of that. Well, it seems like you've always run toward challenges and change. You've never shied away from that. As you think about this year, I mean, that would be a pretty big one to change the organization of the company and the leadership of the company. Where do you see yourself in a year? What would you have accomplished at the end of the year that would make you feel really proud? Great question. There are a couple of documentary projects that we've had on deck for a while now, and I haven't actually produced any kind of video or film project in almost two years. So I'd like to have that midway through. I'd like to have that funded and in the field doing that. And I think from a standpoint of an entrepreneur, I just want to feel more at ease. I think running a business is always going to have its challenges. It's your baby, you're nurturing it all the time. I don't want to sacrifice my health for it again. I want my team to feel seen and understood and acknowledged and celebrated. I'm really lucky. That, but they're just so gracious and creative and hardworking and they believe in what they're doing and loyal to a fault. <laughs> and seeing them and hearing them say that they feel like they've expanded and that they feel like they've grown too. 
And it's really just creating a positive company culture through all this talk, conversation around recession and hard times. It's staying true to our vision and continuing to move forward. So let's think about a story that is worth telling, which is the story of women in Web3. What does that story look like to you? And what are the main components or the main characters in it? What would you like the story to be? Well, I can tell you how I became attracted to Web3 beyond just the blockchain part. I'd already discussed the refugee camp I visited with the grocery store that runs on blockchain and that I've written about blockchain since 2014. But the aspect that's more encompassing NFTs and DAOs, originally I wanted nothing to do with it. I saw this NFT thing going on a year and a half to two years ago. I'm like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what people are doing. And then I went to Miami for Art Basel last year, and I felt the same way. For the first half of Art Basel, I was at all these parties and getting invited to things on yachts. It was just capitalism in its worst to me. And I'm not against capitalism. I think capitalism can work when it's harnessed in a very ethical way. But it just felt like there were a lot of men from Wall Street building these NFTs, and I was seeing pixelated rocks on screens selling for nine Ether back when Ether was very high in price at the time. I don't know what the point of this is. And I went back to my hotel and I fell into this capitalist wormhole. I couldn't stop thinking about what is the point of this? What am I even doing here? It doesn't even matter if we're doing tech for social good. And then the next day I went to a side event that was actually organized by someone who now is my creative director. It was primarily Black NFT creators that were there. The event was focused on wine, wellness and well-being in Web3. And the panel that I heard was talking about how being a part of Web3 and creating NFTs has allowed them to break generational curses. So when I heard that, and they meant it, this was not lip service, this was not just, oh, this is what I'm supposed to say. They gave examples of how this is having integrity over their art, being able to build a community around their work and being celebrated in that way by their own community, uplifted them financially, spiritually, psychologically. And so I thought, okay, there's something here. And then I bought my first NFT. It was an NFT by an artist named Malia. She's the founder of Women Rise, very celebrated in the Women in Web3 community. And then I just got pulled into this vortex of women creators and women founders in the Web3 space. It just completely filled me up. And so many beautiful projects out there that are focused on diversity and inclusion, that are focused on educating more women to bring them into Web3 so that they're not left behind. A real sense of camaraderie. It's very genuine, and that pulled me into it. So if I was going to do a whole story, I would say it definitely includes some of the people that I just mentioned, but also the essence of it really is friendship, collaboration, co-creation, all those things. And I think those words can sometimes be thrown around, especially at conferences, they can be thrown around and it's kind of cliche, but it's not cliche in the sense it's so real. I was saying before, for any Web3 project to be successful, their community has to be tight. Community has to be real. And that's what I've learned. And that's been a huge gift since becoming a part of these networks. Oh, I love that. I love the thought of breaking different patterns of the past, really having more agency and having more wealth creation opportunities, hopefully for women and diverse founders as a result of this space, which is why we're all very focused on that and making sure women are at the table as these things get created. So final thoughts for this year. We've talked about really your goals for everything. When you look at how you want to motivate a team over the next year or serve clients, is there anything that comes to mind as where you would like to be? So joy is one of my words for 2023. It started to become an important word at the end when I realized that I was having no, that I had no joy. This is going to sound so overprivileged because it is. So I was sailing down the Nile River for two weeks 
with an organization called Hatch. Hatch is actually a partner of the Female Quotient, the Equality Lounge that we're at right now. I was with this wonderful group of 45 people. We were sailing down the Nile River to explore the temples and discuss the origins of feminism and how we can incorporate a balance of feminine energy and masculine energy into business and technology. And then a few of us went to COP27, the big climate action convening, which was also in Egypt. I was supposed to be there for 10 days. I left five days early because I was exhausted. I was drained and I had a great time. I met some wonderful innovators and I did some filming. But then I felt myself counting the days (laughs) as to when I could leave. And I realized, okay, this was just another part of the whole burnout story I was telling you. After that, I realized my word for 2023 is joy. When I'm working, I'm like, what's driving me? What's keeping me going? And a friend of mine said, it's adrenaline, but we're not experiencing any joy because she was going through something very similar. So joy, joy for myself, joy for my team. And receive is my other word for 2023. I feel that it's very easy as an entrepreneur to push and chase. A lot of what we're doing is securing contracts, securing clients, customers, getting something done, executing. And a lot of that involves working quickly. A lot of that involves working hard and fast. It doesn't all have to be done that way all the time, though. But many times it does in startup culture. In being in that mode, while sometimes it's fun, I don't think it's possible to receive, to receive messages. (laughs) I just found that it's really easy to have numerous blind spots when you're in this rush, rush, rush forward mode. And you might get things done, but what else might you be missing if you're not able to receive answers from the universe or ideas, or if you're not able to tap into your subconscious and really understand what's going on internally. So receive and joy. And the other one is up level. I want to be going to events and meeting people I've never met and doing things I've never done. I think that the theory that if you want to live a life you've never lived, you have to do things you've never done. I think that's absolutely true. And I've done a lot of remarkable things in my life. I'm very lucky, but there's plenty more that I want to do. And there's a lot of areas that I want to keep developing myself. So up-leveling. I love all of that. Thank you so much, Melissa, for talking to us about your journey. We are so behind you and the things that you're doing. Can't wait to see the NFT campaign and just really look forward to the more stories that you're telling. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Melissa. I love her passion and how she considers the impact of every client on the culture of her organization. The NFT collection that she's launching in partnership with Care.com sounds incredible, and I can't wait to take a look. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com W-O-T-M. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.